0: Hey, everybody, this is Joshua Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. I've got uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper on the other line from the Just In Center podcast. He's going to be talking to us today about Lutheran soteriology. Very, very excited about learning about the subject. Very excited. Uh, as, as we've been soteriologically homeless and are looking for a home. We
1: are looking for a home. <laughs> we are looking for a home. Before
0: we dive into the conversation, we'll let you know what Remnant Radio is and what we're all about. Uh, we are a theology broadcast. We stream every Monday night, 8.30 p.m., Central Standard Time, Uh, and we also stream uh, Tuesdays, like today, from four to five. It's our new time. Uh, We interview pastors and teachers from across the world, from different churches and denominations. I interview guys like N.T. Wright, Wayne Grudem, Jack Deere, Craig Keener, Dr. Michael Brown. If you're interested in listening from all the theological spaces and learning theology and kind of challenging your theological echo chamber, Remnant Radio is the podcast for you. Hit the subscribe button and make sure to hit the like as we're coming out with content just like this to my left your right doctor Michael Roundtree. I keep I'm call not him a doctor. doctor. I love it every week. He's just a dude. It's
1: barely. <laughs> I'm a pastor. It's barely a guy. <laughs> okay. So, yes, my name is Michael Roundtree. Uh, great to have you guys with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and make sure that you hit that subscribe button because we have some great shows coming down the pike. Which, uh, like like what shows, Michael? Uh, well, let me tell you. Actually, last <laughs> night, uh, if if you're not too familiar with uh, the subject of expository preaching, really talked about that. Uh, had a great conversation with Pastor David Corbett. Voice on that last night. Coming up this week, um, uh, on Wednesday, we have w- another one of the Todd White interviews that's about to drop. On Friday, I'm excited about this one. We have Dr. G.K. Beale. Oh, yeah. And that's pretty uh, serious. And so I've read his book. It's a handbook on the New Testament usage of the Old Testament going to ha- be just a fascinating conversation of the hermeneutic that the authors of the New Testament used and the way they understood and interpreted the Old Testament. It's going to be a great conversation on Fridays at 1 p.m. on Friday. I think it's 1 p.m. Are we taping that one? Uh, let's have do we it decided live. we're live in it? Let's just go, it's been we're gonna decided. Live it. We're going to go live, live on Friday. Okay. And then uh, so and then next week we have Elijah Stevens coming.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. From Bethel.
1: Yeah. Tell us a little
0: little bit about him. So he was on the cultish podcast. Many people don't know Elijah. Um, he, so I guess Bethel or the cultish podcast was like, Hey, Bethel's a cult. And if anyone from Bethel wants to come on and talk to us about it, feel free to come. And Elijah was like, I'll come. Uh, and he teaches apologetics at the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And we were kind of in a, I don't know, personally, I'm, I'm going to place myself and say, uh, when I look at Bethel, I see, again, sloppy theological language. I don't think they're heretics, but there are some things that are concerning. There's some things to talk through. Yeah, the things to talk through. And Elijah, man, he did a really phenomenal job on the Coldest Podcast, and I would really encourage people to go check it out. Uh, they did four different broadcasts. One of them is live for the YouTube audience. We're to go check that out. Uh, and he just did a, a really good job kind of presenting Orthodox theology and the Orthodox yeah. theology of Bethel. So he's I was actually, really excited.
1: We're actually here. We're actually going to fly him in. He's going right. to be live in studio. Uh, one of the big questions we've been asked. Everybody's asking, what do you think of the NAR? What do you think oh, of the, NAR, yeah. the new apostolic reformation? We're going to talk directly about that. We're going to talk about discernment ministries. We're going to talk about anti-intellectualism within the charismatic Pente- Pentecostal movement and then objections to Bethel. And so uh, send us your objections in <laughs> and uh, and we'll try to get to them. We're going to do a whole episode on that. So yeah. it's going to be. That was like our
0: four minute intro. We that gotta, was a we long gotta right intro. To the stuff. We got
1: we to gotta get to Dr. Cooper. Dr. Cooper. This is going to be a ridiculously good episode. I am so excited. <laughs> so excited. Make me Lutheran. I yeah. feel like I'm the guy. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm the guy. You know, what's that meme where, where it's like, uh, I'm soteriologically homeless, change my mind, or something like that? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, feel yeah. like that guy. So, uh, um, Dr. Cooper. What a privilege to have you on the show. I listen to your Justin Center podcast. If you guys don't listen to it or watch it on YouTube, uh, make sure you do. Uh, this guy does an incredible job. Such an honor to have you. Uh, Dr. Cooper, I've kind of introduced you a little bit, but tell
2: us a little bit more about yourself. And, uh, how <laughs> yeah, I sure. i with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me uh, back on. This is my second time on here. I came on to do a discussion of Sola Scriptura in the past. and um, Yeah, so those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Dr. Jordan Cooper. I run a ministry called Justin Sinner. I'm the executive director, and we have a weekly podcast that I host, um, but I also run something called the Widener Institute. Uh, We offer theological courses online, continuing education courses, um, both live they're all distance, done online um but we have some that are live and others that are pre-recorded uh and i run a publishing house we put out old lutheran materials i do a lot of writing myself uh and yeah all sorts of different things so if you are interested uh in the podcast or anything that that we do you can go to justincenter.org and find all of that there
0: do you want to flash that mug sure yeah
2: i've got my
1: Justin man
2: oh there it is
1: we don't have mugs man yeah we're not as cool as dr cooper
0: (laughs) You, we need mugs. you have to have a doctorate to get mugs. It's a it's a rule of podcasting, <laughs> Doctor Cooper. Uh, before we get too too deep into I guess the nitty gritties of uh, talking about soteriology, can you can you maybe kind of
1: and let's define that word? Not all our viewers know it, so the. <clears throat> soteriology is theology pertaining to specifically salvation.
0: Yeah. Can you unpack uh, for us kind of what the the Lutheran position of soteriology, maybe like the order of salutis and kind of explain uh, how how Lutherans understand the process by which we come to God? Uh, and then we'll kind of dive in after that.
2: Yeah, to be honest, that's kind of a big question. And I would say we'd have to kind of start with particulars, probably. Um, it, it's kind of hard to give a like a very brief summary. Um because they're – I'll tell you why. I'm looking at the poster behind your head right now and I see that John Calvin and Jacob Arminius fighting each other, right? So <laughs> mm-hmm. the the kind of Calvinist-Arminian debates have largely framed how we speak about salvation within – at least within the American church and a large portion of the evangelical church around the world. Uh, and I think because those categories of those two groups, which really both come out of the Reformed branch of the Reformation, um, at least in their roots, uh, that's kind of shaped a lot of our conversations. So when we say things that are – you know, Lutheran often has people just get confused because they're thinking in a very different paradigm. Um, so let me just maybe here here's a way to to break down some of the basics. First of all, if we're talking about the doctrine of salvation in a broad sense soteriology, um, I would say we have to speak about our salvation in a basically a twofold sense. We have that which is objective and that which is subjective. Uh, and by objective, I mean uh, we can speak about the objective work of Christ, or what some nice theologians call the historia salutis, right? The history of redemption. And from a Lutheran perspective, that which is done objectively in the life of Christ, particularly his life, death, and resurrection, that is accomplished universally and objectively for all mankind, all humankind, every single person, right? No one is excluded from that. Um, so, and that's what we call objective justification, is this idea that in Christ, he is justified, and as Christ is justified, the whole world is, is justified in him. Uh, but then we have what is uh, the subjective aspect of that, the question of how then does the objective work of Christ that accomplished our salvation. How does that come to us individually? How does that come to us uh, personally? So, uh, in when we're talking about that, Lutherans speak a lot about the sacraments, right? So we have two things to talk about here. We have, on the one hand, the question of how does God bring that objective and universal work of Christ to individuals now in history? Right, we're separated two thousand years in history from where Christ was and what he did. So how does that work come to us? And the answer to that, we would say through the means of grace. Uh, So we can speak about the word of God and the sacraments. And so that's, those are the, I've used the language that's kind of a delivery system that God has used to bring his grace uh, and redemption to us. Uh, And then we have the related question, which is, okay, that's how God gives it. Now, how do I receive it? If we're asking that question, the answer is sola fide, faith alone. So I receive it in faith, the means of grace, God brings me the gifts of grace and saves me. And we would also say, because there's a lot to this discussion, but we would also say with Calvinism uh, that faith itself is a divine gift. So faith is a gift of God. Um, In other words, we would confess that that objective work of Christ is universal. In that way, it's similar to where the Arminians are coming from. But in terms of where faith comes from, uh, we would say that it is the work of the Holy Spirit alone in giving us the gift of faith. Okay. Awesome. So, uh,
1: so when we talk about the sacraments, so let's say that somebody, uh, somebody comes to you and says, well, well, let's talk about baptism. Then does, does baptism literally save me or am I saved by faith? And baptism is sort of like, you know, I'm kind of speaking from the reformed position here where baptism is, uh, is a work in which I'm, uh, in which it's an act of obedience, okay? Right. Whereas for you, you use the the language of gift. Baptism is actually part of the gift and a means of grace. Could you unpack that a little bit for us?
2: Yeah, so in terms of the first part of that question, does baptism save, would I literally say that? Well, Scripture says that, right? Scripture says baptism now saves you. I mean, First Peter, the language mm-hmm. is, is biblical. So the question, of course, is what does Peter mean by that? Um, and, you know, we, we could look at some of the context of the parallel that he's making with the flood uh, and and he co- he makes a correspondence between the flood and what God did to, through to Noah in this event with water that noah and his family were saved from the literal wrath of God that was poured out on the earth through the flood um, and he says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you so through this act of water there is an act of salvation uh, and I think in the parallel, there was no symbolic action going on with Noah and his family during the flood. I mean, this is something uh-huh. that God is doing, and God has chosen to save Noah and his family through this act. Uh, the other parallel that we have in Scripture, Old Testament typology that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, is the example of Moses and the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. That This is a baptism. They were baptized into Moses. This was no figurative redemption. This was the people of Israel literally being redeemed from their literal physical enemies and those who enslaved them. And that's why we have the tie between that and the language of baptism redeeming us from slavery. That is the slavery to sin. So uh, if you ask the question, does baptism save? uh, I would say yes. And I, I think we have scriptural grounds for doing so. But you, of course, get the question that you're asking, which is, well, is it a work though? But we're not saved by works. That's kind of, isn't that kind of Luther's whole thing with the Reformation, the whole being saved by faith alone, not works? He
0: knows the follow up Uh, questions.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have these conversations all the time, right? So people are always asking this. Uh, And what we have to do there is distinguish between baptism as we say, okay, if if you're going to say baptism as a work, whose work is it? Is it my work of obedience? Because if it's my work of obedience, then absolutely it does not save because I'm not saved by my works. But if baptism is actually God's work, something that he does to save me, then we absolutely can speak about baptism saving. So there's Mm -hmm. no contradiction between saying we are saved through faith alone and saying we are saved by baptism any more than there's a contradiction between saying we are saved through faith alone and we are saved by the word of God. Which usually people understand, okay, they understand that the word of God can be a means – that God uses to save us, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we would place baptism kind of in the same category.
0: Hmm. interesting so um when we talk about depravity um total depravity would be the way a calvinist talks about it and really as far as i can tell armenians are, are very comfortable using the language of depravity when talking about the nature of humanity uh i think we're
1: all on the same page with depravity as far as like partial pelagians like nobody's maybe. gonna choose god on their own Nobody, yeah like romans 8 where the natural we're hostile to god in our flesh right so right. um uh, Right. So. So, so we all kind of agree, uh, at
0: least we there is a, a large agreement within right. Protestantism about depravity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- that being said, the the nature of grace and how grace works seems to be uh, a strong disagreement between Calvinists and Armenians. Uh, Armenians would say, hey, there is a prevenient grace that is drawing us. A Calvinist would say, there's an irresistible grace that is selecting <laughs> us. Um, uh, h- how would a how how would a lutheran understand the nature of grace is it right. resistible is it prevenient how would you articulate that
2: yeah so as we're speaking about yeah first that that baseline problem of depravity right so there is broadly agreement within and it's really not even just within protestantism within western christianity as a whole um so I mean, within the entire Augustinian tradition. So that would be you know, from Arminians to Roman Catholics, to Lutherans, to Calvinists, we really do have agreement on on that point. But I think you're right to then identify the core of the issue is not so much what did sin do to us. Though there are some disagreements there as well when you get into the particulars. But generally Mm -hmm. all of those traditions are going to speak about faith as only being, the human creature only being able to receive faith because of some prior work of God, right? Not by natural powers. Mm-hmm. Um. So we wouldn't use the language of irresistible grace that Calvinism would. So if you're going to make that distinction between, say, the kind of irresistible or effectual grace that the Reformed will generally use or prevenient grace that the Arminians use, uh, if you're going to use a specific term to identify Lutheran grace, it would be maybe sacramental grace. Uh, and that is that God works faith through the means of grace. And by means of grace, we identify basically word and sacrament. Uh, the, Luther also was clear, by the way, if you read uh, his small catechism, that the the efficacy of the sacraments is in the word itself. So baptism saves through the word of God. In other words, the, God has attached his word to the water, his word being the specific baptismal formula I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with the Lord's Supper, we would say, you know, the, the words of institution. Um, so it's the word of God that works through the means of grace, and through his word, in the means of grace, the Holy Spirit creates faith within us. But that is not done in such a way that it is irresistible. So it is, in fact, resistible. Um so it's confessed by Lutheran theologians that God certainly can work irresistibly. He could work irresistibly uh, if God is working according to His His power in an absolute sense. Of course, God is irresistible. Uh, it's not that there is something so powerful about the human will that He has to, you know, He can't overcome our resistance. In fact, we would say that naturally we all resist. But God works through the means of grace to grant us the gift of faith, but we can resist that. So, in this way, we would confess that if someone does come to faith, there is no there is no synergistic act in terms of coming to faith. There is nothing that we add, even, even in terms of a prevenient grace that frees our will so that we can now make a free will decision. We wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would not with Calvinism say that grace is irresistible because we believe that grace is always given through the means of grace. So here's here really the means of grace are going to be the thing that differentiates view from the Calvinist in many ways. Because for the reformed tradition, even through the word of God, right, the Holy Spirit is only effectual through the word of God for regeneration when he sovereignly decides that he will be. In other words, the spirit is not always active in the word. Sometimes he can be active for condemnation. Um But there is what is a separation of the means of grace and the spontaneous work of the Spirit. So sometimes they'll speak about, um, like Charles Hodge speaks about a spontaneous regeneration, or B.B. Warfield does as well, um, to differentiate from the Lutheran view. Whereas we would say every time baptism is administered or every time the Word of God is read, preached, proclaimed in any form whatsoever, the Holy Spirit is present and active working through it. Mm -hmm so y-
1: you talked about how the means of grace, and specifically i 'll stick with baptism, how it creates faith uh, and I hope yes. I quoted you right yeah, yeah so um so speaking from maybe someone who's historically leaned more reformed on this um, help me understand how it uh, how it creates faith because like kind of in my mind as I 'm thinking about it, it seems as though you believe in Christ and you're saying, now I believe in Christ, so I'll get baptized versus the language of create faith almost sounds as though like, could we, could we put someone kicking and screaming into the baptismal water? And it's (laughs) like, whoa, I believe now because man, I I have some new evangelism ideas. Now, obviously you're not saying that, but I'd love for you to help us understand what a Lutheran means when they talk about creating faith.
2: Yeah, uh, it would be pretty easy if, if we believed that it just brought people to faith, right? Because, you <laughs> right. know, we, we sprinkle or pour, so I could just walk down the street and start baptizing everybody. That would make <laughs> that a wonder lot you easier. You take a oh, yeah. super soaker yeah, down the yeah, street and if so you got uh, down for everybody. For sure. But uh, clearly, that's, that's not what we do. Um, right. And the reason for that is this, that when we're – you have to recognize – that if it was tr- if we believed in an effectual grace in the sense of the Reformed, or in other words, an irresistible grace, then we would say, sure, we could do that. Um, but because grace is resistible, and we certainly have no scriptural precedent at all for dragging people to baptism unwillingly, uh, I, I would argue differently for the, the oikos baptisms, the household baptisms. Um, so it would be my argument that we do have precedent for doing that when it comes to a household and those in that household, but not for just forcing people to be baptized in terms of, you know, a, a rank right. unbeliever who hates the Christian faith. Um, but it wouldn't really do them any good because we can resist God's grace. And if we can resist and people do resist, then it doesn't mean that, say, if you were to do one of those bizarre things, right, grab the pagan and force them to be baptized, would the baptism be valid? Well, I mean, sure, in the sense that the water's there, the word is there, it's the objective promise of God. Um, So, is the baptism itself valid? Sure, probably not in right order or proper, uh, but does that mean that the baptism would have the effect that you desire? Probably not. And that would be due to human resistance.
0: So, um, yeah, it does. And I, I would be curious, so when we're talking about uh, like like, when would you baptize a person? Like, they would need some kind of profession of faith. Is that is that right?
2: Uh, if they are not an infant, of course,
0: uh, of course, of course, yes, because yeah, they okay. can't profess.
2: <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, we we have, and this is really what all Pado Baptist churches do is we do practice believers' baptism for those who have not received baptism yet, and generally, believers' baptism in that circumstance requires a profession of faith. Um, so we would do that in terms of the person who is able to profess faith. But if it comes to an infant or, you know, even somebody who is just... So
0: grace is irresistible as long as you're still in (laughs) pull-ups. I'm just kidding.
2: Well, there's a a question that people often ask about that because it is the assumption that, yes, if your infant is baptized, then your infant is saved. And I, I do think that that's... That seems to be the scriptural assumption when we look at the example of things like household baptisms, um, you know, and I pointed some of the same passages that a Presbyterian would in that question. Right. Um, but so Lutheran theologians have have wondered about that. You know, why is it that we have considered infants as saved, but also uh, recognize that we other people can resist the grace of God in baptism? So the response has usually been that. Infants do have what is just the natural human resistance, right, They, because we're born in sin. So there is a natural resistance. But what infants don't offer is that kind of exceptional, willing resistance to the grace of God that whatever at whatever point we seem to develop as we grow older. Uh, and so we generally accept that infants are regenerate Christians from the moment of baptism. Um now, is it possible that an infant could resist in their will to the point of rejecting the regeneration offered in baptism? Well, maybe, but there's no way we would even know that, right? So,
0: but you guys also hold to apostasy, so it doesn't make it, right, it, doesn't make exactly. it
2: impossible. It's not, it's not it's that not difficult. Guaranteed. You could
0: say, hey, the, yeah. the child was saved, and then right. when it got eight months old, the child is eight months old, it yeah. was like, ah, I'm apostatized. Yeah. I do have a follow-up question in asking that why, why do we wait for uh, a profession of faith— like, how does that work with depravity? Like, if we're totally depraved, doesn't God have to make us alive so that we could want yes. something like baptism? Um, so, yes. w- would you say that that is a subjective justification that takes place? Um through the hearing of the word and I'm professing faith that that's subjective and then immersion in water is the objective uh, salvation. I, I don't know that I quite understand the objective and subjective yeah, perfectly yeah, sure. yet. Yeah. I'm so so
2: we're talking about objective justification. We're not talking about your personal life at all. We're talking about the life of Jesus. So okay. the idea of objective justification is that something was accomplished for the world in Christ. Wow. Uh, we could say to use, um, you know, Paul's language, uh, he describes... The resurrection of a christ, of christ as a justification he was justified by the spirit and well that, that's kind of odd phraseology to use what do you mean jesus was justified why does he need to be justified well jesus had now paid for the sins of the world and he has been vindicated by the father at his resurrection and so god declares that he is justified or he is righteous his work is accepted um and How some Lutheran theologians have spoken of that resurrection of Christ or that justification of Christ is it's kind of it's an absolution of the whole world in Christ. So when I am brought in faith, the verdict of justification that I receive is really no different than the verdict that was placed on Christ, that he is the righteous one. So when Mm. I am brought in faith, I am brought into Christ and the verdict God placed on him. So that's my subjective justification. Is just any time that justification salvation is applied to me individually. But objective right. justification is really more about the work of Christ Himself. Um, okay. Not part of our lives. Yeah. So
1: I, w- I was going to let us move past this, but we've had two or three people in the comments bring it back up. And so I'm going to come back to the um, the person resistant to baptism. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, this is hypothetical. You guys would never do this. But it's just it, it's trying to isolate a, a circumstance to help us understand the nature of salvation here. Right. Um, the, the words you use in such a scenario, if somebody – if a pagan resistant to being baptized was baptized, you said it would be valid, I suppose, but I don't think it would have the effect uh, intended. And so some of the people in the comments were saying, so which is it? It sounds like he's saying it's valid, but it's not. So could you maybe bring a, a little clarity for those who are asking a question about that?
2: Yeah. So we we have to make a differentiation between what we mean when we're talking about the baptism being valid and the baptism being efficacious unto salvation. Uh, And I would say that the validity of the baptism is that there is an objective promise of God that is given to us. The promise is objective regardless of our faith, right? So if you receive baptism, what you receive is an objective promise. And even if you reject that, if you remain in unbelief your whole life, the promise is still objectively there for you. And it has been your whole life. You have simply rejected that, right? So this mm-hmm. is why we would say that we don't need to be rebaptized, because if baptism is this objective promise that it is what it is regardless of our own faith, then if you, you know, cut yourself off from that promise through unbelief, you can return to that promise because it is objective and true.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so you would say that, um, Regenerate. So you would say baptism is regen- regenerative, but you would also say that God makes you alive before baptism as well. How, how, do you, is is you, it a process, maybe? Is, it, a, is like, it like mostly? Yeah, we use the like, mostly so dead kind of thinking, the Princess Bride all the time. <laughs> mostly, mostly dead, <laughs> partially dead. You know.
1: I'm thinking of like Acts 11 where <laughs> Peter's preaching and the Holy Spirit falls upon uh peter's audience cornelius and his household and it seems as though salvation is happening in that moment because they're baptized in the holy spirit but then he says how can we keep these people from being baptized and so would you say that they were technically justified in that moment or would you look at justification as a process that Involved that moment of belief in baptism in the Holy Spirit and worked through to baptism, and maybe we're just trying to isolate too much. Like, how do you understand justification in there?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, there are a couple things to say uh, with regard to that question. Um, the first is we would say that God works through the means of grace, which means that he works through his word and he works through baptism. So, what we do have is examples in scripture that are very clear about the salvific efficacy of baptism. And I would point to some of those mm-hmm. texts. I'd I point to John 3, being born of water and the spirit. And yeah, we can get into the debate over whether that's baptism being referred to there. I think a very strong case can be made that it is. Same with uh, the language of the washing of regeneration in the book of Titus. Um, which I know there are debatable passages because there's an argument that they're not referring to baptism. I think convincingly they could be demonstrated that they, that both of those passages are referring to baptism. But um, so I would say, yeah, we've got that language of regeneration being tied to baptism and salvation, in various ways being tied to baptism. But we do also, you know, Peter, for example, speaks about being born again through the word of God. So we do also uh-huh. have biblical language that speaks about being born again through the word of God. So, When we say God works through the means of grace, it doesn't mean baptism in exclusion to the word or the word in exclusion to baptism. We would say that God works in and through both of those things by the power of his spirit. So if you point to examples of, yeah, someone was saved through hearing the word of God, and then they were baptized after, we have no issue with that. Um, What I would say, though, is that doesn't mean that baptism then just becomes a symbolic act. Okay, I, uh-huh. I don't think that baptism then just becomes now this is a sign of the profession of faith of something I had have received previously. Um, and this is where, you know, the way we'll speak of an ordo salutis, for example, uh, will be a little different than what you find within the reform tradition in that I think our ordo salutis is a bit less clean and neat than the Reformed. And I think you'll find that with our theology generally, uh, which is a criticism from the Reformed side is that like we are kind of illogical and our system isn't tight enough and all that stuff. Uh, we would, of course, just contend that we're, we're trying to take all of Scripture as it is and, and that the scriptural system is yeah. not always as tight as we may want it to be, but we accept what God's told us. So uh, in terms of justification there, we would say that justification, we wouldn't use the language of process, right? Because that's Rome's view, is that justification is progressive, or that justification Mm -hmm. is a process that can increase or decrease. Uh, And we would not say that that's true of justification. What justification is, is it's a divine verdict. Uh, As I already said, justification ultimately is really a verdict that was placed on Christ. That's the foundation of it. My being justified is simply a declaration that I am in Christ, and I am in that declaration that he is righteous, uh, which in turn is my, um, we would say my eschatological vindication received now, you know, and I know that sounds maybe complex, but it's the idea that the final judgment, right. Is, is our being declared that we are right before the father and the final judgment means that we will be with him eternally. Um, we can receive that judgment here and now in justification. Amen. Amen. Love it. But in the meantime, while we are pilgrims on this earth, right, awaiting the promised land, um, as we we receive that verdict, we can actually receive it repeatedly. And so I, I think that argument can be made scripturally very much so, so that we don't just have to talk about justification as a past tense reality at the beginning of the life of faith. But we can speak of justification in its future sense of we will be justified on the last day. But we also receive that verdict in our lives here and now in the present. Mm-hmm. And so scripture does it can use a past tense for justification. Look at, you know, Romans five one, having been justified. That is a thing that happened in the past. It's a done deal. Scripture also, though, gives us several examples of individuals who are justified also in time in their life of faith. Um, so if you look at Romans 4, which is kind of the, the classic, I think the strongest text for sola fide in Scripture is the entirety of Romans 4 and the logic of Paul's argument there. Um, but if you look at that argument, he Paul grabs okay. onto two figures of the Old Testament as examples of justification by faith. The examples are Abraham and David. So he goes to Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. Now, if you look at Genesis 15, Uh, It it says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Genesis 15, 6, pretty, pretty popular, Uh famous text. Well, when did Abraham's life of faith begin? Clearly not in Genesis 15 at that moment. Uh I mean, Genesis 12 is a story of Abraham. He leaves his homeland to follow God. He's used as an example of faith in Hebrews 11 in Genesis 12. So his justification happens in Genesis 15. Same with David. What do we see? A, a psalm about, uh, you know, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, his transgression is forgiven. Right. It's an example of, of being in a place of repentance and receiving forgiveness. So in other words, we have to recognize that the grace of God in even that verdict of justification and the forgiveness of sins is something that we receive continually. So we can't just put it in, in this punctiliar sense that one event that happened in our life and then that's it. Why is it that we pray for forgiveness daily, right? Why in the Lord's Prayer do we say, forgive us, forgive our sins, right? Instead of just saying, thank you that my sins have already been forgiven. Um, and, you know, Paul uses in Romans 4 that Psalm 32 example of as forgiveness of sins as really a synonym for justification. You know, justification has other you know, things tied to it as well. But, um, but when we think of the forgiveness of sins, we're thinking justification. So if you need forgiveness daily, then you need justification daily, which means it not that it's a process, right? Not that it's progressing because it's perfect. That's the whole point of it. But it's really the, the verdict of the last day breaking into our present reality here and now. And it does that day by day. And the means of grace are means by which God brings that reality to us. Yeah. And so we could say that, yes, you are justified through faith alone. You hear the word of God. The spirit has, you know, given you faith. Your baptism then does not just become a symbol of some prior reality, but that is an additional means of grace that God gives mm. you. Okay. So I, I totally I get
1: exegetically what you're saying. Genesis yeah. 15 totally is not the beginning of Abraham's life of faith. Uh, his beginning of life of faith would be Genesis kind of end of 11, beginning of 12. Right. And so uh, and so I, I love that exegetically. I think it makes sense. Um, theologically, that's where I have trouble with it. And maybe kind of help me here. Uh, what I mean by theologically on this is I have these kind of categories in my mind of I – have been justified. I am being sanctified and I will be glorified. I have been saved, am Mm. being saved, will be saved. But justified is this kind of past tense thing that occurred in my life. And I I know that I've, I've never, outside of listening to your podcast, my exposure to Lutheranism is not that great. So can you help me understand just Theologically, like, would you just say,
2: well, Calvin's wrong on that and you're just influenced by Calvin? I mean, just <laughs> help me understand <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, I actually think it's it's somewhat problematic when we distinguish the terms in the way that we do of uh, sanctification, justification, glorification, because actually every single one of those realities has both a past, present, and future aspect to it. And, you know, I think this is some of the problem of having a really strict order uh, of And I you know, I, I think an order's lutus is helpful, and I do think we have to make distinctions between these these various aspects of of redemption. But for example, you know, sanctification. We we usually use the term sanctification to refer to right this ongoing process. Right, this is what life is now. Right, then is justification in the past. Now my life is sanctification in the future is glorification. Well, the the language of sanctification or or being holy in Scripture in the New Testament it more often refers to something that is positional than it does something that is progressive because we are already holy in Christ, right? The language of being sanctified, I mean, going back to the Old Testament, to be sanctified is to be set apart right. for God's holy purposes, right? The, the vessels involved in the sacrifices were sanctified. So the fact that we're saints means we're already sanctified. Um, and I think what that does is like some, to some extent, it, helped it having those categories in mind that, well, sanctification has to mean this, justification has to be past tense, Sometimes it can cause us i think not to just take scripture at face value but we read those categories into the text okay. instead of getting our systematic theological categories from so the text. It, so it really
1: seems like it largely comes back to this this difference between Lutheranism and Calvinism where Calvinism really seeks uh, to be clean and to have its nice little mm. Tupperware right. packages right. and Lutheranism is like is what the Bible says in a Tupperware is so condescending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey i'm still more calvinist so i'm, yeah, I'm no, not no, sure yeah yeah we <laughs> yeah, 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 go I on think a scale right, right? <laughs> like we're, that's what it means to be theologically or soteriologically homeless we're just kind of like this scale but we're we're a little bit lutheran in sacrament some right. ways at least in the sense that it's means of grace
0: yeah and uh, john mark hicks came on and talked to us about um, how how sacraments tie us to the past and to the future, you know. Um, when it talks, you know, we talk about uh, uh, even even taking the uh, the elements when we're doing uh, communion or taking the Lord's table or the Eucharist. We we look back to His death, but we're doing right. it proclaiming. His coming, and he talked about the the assembly of the church, and and we assemble in the same way that God is coming one day to assemble us from the four corners of the earth when we caught up with Him. Talking about a future day, so in right. talking about justification, thinking of it as a past tense thing, but also thinking of it as a future tense thing, like Israel eating in the present manna that tasted of honey when they were going to the land flowing of milk and honey, as yes. kind of a, a present promise of something that is future. Um, that actually makes a whole lot of sense to me after having that conversation recently.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we would say that, you know, I think that ties in well to the sacraments as we're speaking about, you know, as, as you're pointing out, you know, I think of baptism as a great example of this, right? Because in baptism, we are actually being brought into the reality that is Christ's baptism, right? right? Christ mm-hmm. received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And he is declared the beloved son of the father. In our baptisms, we receive the spirit and are declared the beloved son of the father because we are brought into the reality of what happened in Christ. And then that also is a prefiguration of the the future realities of of new heavens and new earth as well. And we even have this, you know, picture of the spirit hovering above the waters in creation. So it points us forward to that reality of new creation. Um, And so that's true of I think most aspects of the Christian life. I think I would say that you could even say the same about glorification. Now we we tend to think of glorification as just future, um, but the idea of glorification really is rooted in the notion that we share in the glory of God. Right? God. And you've done a lot of work on theosis, right? I I have yes. Um, so I I have a book, uh, Christification: A Lutheran Approach to Theosis, um, and I have a more a book that I just finished recently, which I think is a lot better than the first one, um, but <laughs> it's not out yet. But uh, I've done quite a bit of, of reading on this subject and thinking about this. Um, but think about – so that idea of theosis, which is very common in the Church Fathers, is essentially glorification. It's mm-hmm. essentially saying there's an aspect of our heavenly existence in in our the beatific vision, right? Our, presence in in god himself in front of his holiness his glory um there is an aspect of that that we receive today so think for example about uh when paul is writing to the corinthians and he he has that um he grabs onto that story about moses okay so here's a great example of glorification prior to the eschaton um Moses, when he goes on Mount Sinai, is there before mm-hmm. the glory of God, right? And to such an extent that his face shines with the divine glory. Uh, and, you know, he comes down the mountain and nobody can look at him because his face is shining so brightly. So he has even this physical transformation by through being in the presence of God. And you have this imagery of kind of ascending to heaven as he go on the mountain and those kind of things. Um, and, of course, you know... We may think, well, that that's you know just Moses. It's not like we see Christians, you know, reading scripture and coming away from that having their faces glowing, or at least I mm-hmm. experience.
0: Michael uh, is quite a luminous when he yeah. came into the studio <laughs> <this one> today.
2: <laughs> I was really in the word. Yeah, but uh, but Paul grabs onto that theme when he's writing to the Corinthians. And, and says that we are being transformed into that same glory day by day. So we could even say that glorification has this present day reality too. And even we can go back to the life of Christ because who was the ultimate, you know what's the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is God's Son. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know especially if you look at John's gospel, he uses that that, that language of glory pretty consistently the reference to Christ, particularly the cross. So where the glory of God is manifest in Christ, So we're looking past, present, we now, as we are in the presence of God, specifically in the presence of Christ, we're being transformed into his glory. And then on the last day, that will become a visible reality. Uh, So we can speak about that as past, present, and future as well. I, I think this is really key in a lot of conversations that are going on in the theological world today because a lot of criticisms of the Reformation, particularly Lutheranism, are really not criticisms of Lutheranism, because they're criticisms of more the reform system. So I would point to N.T. Wright, for example, who is often criticizing the doctrine of justification reading of Paul in Luther. Um, And, you know, I think to some extent, he's reading Boltmann into uh, Luther. But beyond that, I think he's really thinking in terms of this very strict once-for-all ordo salutis, and he doesn't see that present tense justification reality that's that's very much there within, within the Lutheran tradition.
1: Hmm. Okay. I wonder if we could shift gears toward the atonement specifically. We have a question from Dustin Neely, one of our regular viewers. He says, do Lutherans hold to penal substitutionary atonement? Is there a a Lutheran distinction in the way they define it? So maybe you could explain for our viewers what is penal substitutionary atonement and the Lutheran understanding of it specifically.
2: Yeah, so penal substitution is not really language that we use that often. The language of penal substitution tends to be more a reformed language or the idea that Christ is punished on on our behalf. Uh, Specifically for the reformed, it implies the notion of his... Um, receiving the wrath of God upon himself on the cross in place of the elect specifically. That tends to predominate a lot of the Reformed conversations about the atonement. Um, In terms of how Lutherans formulate the atonement, we largely agree with the presentation in that we believe that Christ uh, suffered on the cross and he paid our penalty on the cross, but we would say it's a universal thing. Mm -hmm. But we tend to use language of, the the phrase that's used among Lutheran theologians is a vicarious satisfaction. So Mm -hmm. we speak about Jesus satisfying the demands of the divine law, the demands of God's law, right? God's law demands death, we owe God death because that's the punishment that he gave due to sin for violating his law, we see that in the garden. Um, And to use Athanasius' language, there is a debt of death that we all owe to God. Uh, Christ vicariously in our place dies that death that we deserve uh, on our behalf. And in faith, we receive that so that we don't have to face that punishment ourselves. So it's very similar to how the Calvinists speak, but it tends not to – we just don't tend to use the language penal substitution very much. Sometimes you'll find Lutherans using it. um, And I think – there's more probably it's the difference of maybe be more an emphasis than than actual um you know theology. we would tend to emphasize satisfaction of the divine law rather than emphasizing the appeasement of wrath. But it's not that but those yeah. things are all tied together too. so it's not like we would, we would say that's not that's not true, okay. Now, it was Christ's physical death the specific
1: payment, like we deserve to physically die and Jesus paid? Or, or is it somehow like, you know, in Revelation, there's the first death and the second death. Is he, is he taking somehow like our eternal wrath upon himself on the cross? Would you uh, – what, what would you say about that?
2: Yeah, I mean definitely, you know, the death that's implied in, you know, Genesis 3 with the fall I think is not just physical death. But there certainly is a spiritual death that happens uh, as spiritual death being removed from the presence of God as they're kicked out of Eden. Uh, So, yeah, we would certainly say that that is there's both physical and spiritual death that are punishments of sin. And Christ does take both of those upon himself.
0: Okay. So, uh, I'm curious, uh, if uh, is a regular, uh, viewer of ours, he, he saw that you're coming on and he, he really likes your content. So he asked me a couple questions. One of them was really interesting. Um, is the Lutheran doctrine of election is it is the same as Calvinism or do you guys define election in a different way?
2: Yeah. So, uh, the Lutheran doctrine of election is not the same as Calvinism and it's not the same as Arminianism. Um, okay. there are actually some disagreements even among Lutherans on the doctrine of election. Um, mm. but, uh, we would say. <laughs> Josh is really interested <laughs> that. Yeah, that, in a, hmm. yeah, okay, that. Trouble paradise. Yeah, that's a question for another day because that's a whole other discussion. But okay, um, <laughs> the, the perspective that, that I would present as the one of our, of our confessions is that election is unconditional, that we are in that sense we agree with Calvinism, that those who are elected unto salvation are elected uh, not because of any worthiness in them at all. Um, So our confession specifically in the Formula of Concord, Article 11 on the Doctrine of Election, um, specifically cite two causes of election, and those are the grace of God and the merits of Christ, and that's it. So nothing in terms of our election unto salvation is anything within us. Um, So we would not say that we are elected based on some – a knowledge of any, you know, future libertarian free will decision or something like that. Um, but where we would differ from Calvinism is not so much in terms of the positive aspect of election, but in terms of the negative. So we we don't go with Calvin uh, in affirming a double predestination. So we would not affirm a a reprobation in in either a supralapsarian or infralapsarian sense uh, that that are the positions in Calvinism. uh, Because we believe in universal grace, which means there's universal atonement. There is a universal desire on God's behalf that uh, all would be saved. And we believe that as the means of grace are distributed, the spirit works universally toward whoever receives those means of grace uh, in order to convert.
0: So, uh, I was reading Louis Burkhoff trying to make sense of Reformation history and soteriology and yeah. he was giving uh, kind of a, a description of uh, Lutheran soteriology and the way that it works. Uh, I'd be curious if if this makes sense. Um, with with the, the Lutheran view, it seems as if grace is uh, like a force that is on uh, the believer. Uh, it's happening to them in a monergistic way. They can resist that grace, um, but if it passively if if they don't resist that grace, uh, what is produced is faith and repentance. Would that be you think
2: an apt description of the Lutheran view? Yeah. So here's here's actually where some of the disagreement comes in among Lutherans is mm-hmm. in terms of how do we deal with that issue of non resistance? Right. So yes.
0: And that was my follow up question. Well, I love it how he like
2: he knows. Yeah. He knows what I'm <laughs> gonna ask. <Good. laughs> It makes you feel good. <laughs> well, that that's the difficulty. So that's where there's actually a little bit of disagreement among Lutheran theologians. Um, so some have argued that at that point, that's exactly right. So we can't do anything positive uh, in, in terms of a movement toward God's grace, but we can just not resist. And then God's grace is efficacious. Uh, but we also have the question of natural resistance. And if we just have this natural resistance, and that's part of what we mean that we're in bondage to sin— then can we really cease resisting? Because that doesn't that again make it just our doing again? Or in other words, mm-hmm. does it mean that you know I'm a Christian and the person next to me isn't because they resist? There's
0: something good enough in you yes, to, to not, not resist. resist, right?
2: Ah. Uh, so that's that's a question uh, that gets pointed out there. And ultimately, I think we would even say, I would say at least that really our non-resistance itself is still a work of of god too and that's the point where we would say um no it's not because i resisted less because i'm a better person and at that point we would say we have to accept the mystery of god at that point and not really go beyond to answer that question anymore particularly
0: and and this is this is not a a trappy sort of question i know it could certainly be received that way when we look at like armenianism it People articulate Armenian theology as synergistic, even yes. Armenians. We've had Armenian theologians on the channel who are like, oh, yeah, we're all yeah. We're totally synergist. They like l- they like brag about it. I'm like, I don't like I don't like it. I don't like synergism. Like, the whole <laughs> yeah. term I just makes yeah. me uncomfortable. I don't like right. it. Yeah. Uh, probably because I love Luther. But um, w- when if, if we're going to go with that definition of not resisting versus allowing this grace to happen, wouldn't that also make an Armenian a monergist, like if we're, if we're going to use that same kind of category and and talk about terms too. Okay. So monergism, um, salvation that takes place is, it's a gift of God alone. Synergism. I work with God, uh, you know, the sinner together, uh, like uh, it, it literally means together work. Synergism—the word means together. Work. There's a cooperation uh, there's on a, the
1: part of the human being. God works but the salvation, and man works the salvation differently. Some would, yeah. Some would say synergism automatically like makes you not a Christian because you're putting your works in with it. But others would say, well, I mean by synergistic, I'm cooperating with my faith. Yeah, so I've heard it articulated both ways.
0: Monergism.
1: So how would you God's define work. monergism and synergism? Yeah. Uh, Doctor Cooper.
2: Yeah, right. So I would say that I think the distinction between, you know, either Lutheran perspective, right, in Arminianism, is that is that that question of is there, though, anything active that the will does in cooperation and conversion? Right. And that's where the Arminian would say yes. And the Lutheran would say no. Right. So even even the person who is. The closest to Arminianism within a Lutheran confession, um, Uh that individual would still deny that the human will can actually do anything active. It's simply not doing something active, right? It's simply not actively resisting, not that it is um, actively cooperating. So it still would it would dif, be differentiated from the Armenian perspective. Um, the perspective I would come from more so as I as I've you know articulated is is more that I would say no. Ultimately, I think we do have to come down to say that the only reason one does, has non-resistance is the grace of God working in them. So we can't even take credit for that either. Mm. Um, that that's where I would come down on that on that question. But no one who's coming to that perspective would openly say they're a synergist in the way that an Armenian would. So yeah, it. The question of Arminianism and synergism, or sorry, uh, monergism and synergism, sometimes can get a little confusing because there's the historical definition of the terms, and then there are the various ways that theological traditions kind of try to redefine the terms. So historically- (laughs) That's usually the issue, isn't it? It (laughs) is, it is, right? So when we're talking about the issue, really, we're talking about those who are coming more from Augustine's perspective, to say that we can speak of faith as a divine gift, and the synergists. Are those who are saying that there is a cooperation with God's grace, but particularly we're dealing with the issue of conversion, just conversion, because we also, I think, can validly speak about cooperating with God. I mean, scripture uses the language that we're co workers with God. It, it says, that, right? So, so in some contexts, that's not a bad thing. Um, right. And when we're talking about the realm of sanctification, we can't speak. Monergistically in the same way because it gets more Mm -hmm. I think the question gets a lot more complicated because now we are cooperating But we are also cooperating only with the new powers the spirits given us So it's not autonomous human free will cooperating, but it's still cooperating Um, So I think we have to define largely what we mean by monergism and synergism in these discussions I've heard calvinists say if you believe you can fall away from the faith. You can't be a monergist um, to me, that makes no sense because now Augustine is no longer a monergist um, and only Calvinists are, which, which I think is Dang. a major historical problem.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it when like Lutherans are like, yo, like Augustine's more our guy than your guy. Is, <laughs> like, that always that's, makes that's, me so
1: happy that, when he's that's like. That's actually <laughs> like the historical argument of the church in the West. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah Lutheran <laughs> was Augustinian. Back up. Like, you know yeah. what i was talking about. <laughs> OK, so absolution. Like this is something that non-Lutherans are like, wait, what is that? Could you talk to us about what is it? Does it have mm-hmm. a part in salvation?
2: Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, here is an area no where— No pun intended? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I think absolution is is a very clear area where just a lot of the church doesn't have much to do with a certain text in Scripture that are, that are there and pretty blunt. Um, so we have in Scripture this idea of the keys of the kingdom of heaven right? Matthew 16 and then Matthew 18, that's addressed. John 20 is another passage that we'd look at in terms of absolution. Um, and Matthew 16 has unfortunately been used so often with debates about the papacy that oftentimes that's where we center our discussions and we just fight it out of like, well, are the keys given to Peter uniquely? And who was Peter? And what's the connection between Peter mm-hmm. and Rock. But we kind of miss the point of the text um, because the point of the text really is to say that First of all, there, there are keys that are given to Peter, and the keys are connected to something particular. That is the binding of sins and the loosing of sins. In Matthew eighteen. It's very clear that the keys are given to the church, by the way, not just to Peter. Um, so, uh, the the keys of the kingdom of heaven mean that heaven is open, and heaven is open through the forgiveness of sins. Right, because we enter into heaven as those who are pure, whose sins have been forgiven, and the church is given the authority to operate those keys, which means the church has the authority to do what? Bind sins and loose sins. In other words, to forgive sins. John 20, same thing happens. Uh, Jesus says to the apostles, uh, and, and this is right before he's sending them out to form the church, by the way, he says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Mm-hmm. And so what there is, is there is a connection between the forgiveness of sins before God and the forgiveness that is proclaimed through the church. Mm-hmm. So, and he doesn't, I mean, the, the language is clear enough in all of those texts that, and, and I know that there are arguments that it means something very different from what it, what it actually says. But if you read any major English translation, they're all going to translate those passages in basically the same way because it's unambiguous, what what's going on there. Uh, and that is that as the church forgives sins, The keys are operated, which means that the forgiveness of sins from heaven, some heavenly reality is being enacted in the church here and now. It is not just that the pastor or someone in the church is to remind people that their sins are forgiven somewhere else. That's not at all the language that Jesus uses. So if you're going to be straightforward with the language of Christ himself, I think it's very clear that there has to be forgiveness of sins that is actually given through the church, through what we call the office of the keys. So in other words, in absolution, the pastor, because we believe that the pastor, it's not the authority of the pastor as, you know, uh, being an alter Christus in the Roman Catholic sense or something. Um, there's no indelible character placed on the pastor. But the pastor is the one who's called to operate the public functions of the church. So in that, we would say that it's then the pastor's role to be the one to use this office of the keys. Which means that the pastor uh, can indeed say to to the repentant sinner, your sins are forgiven. And can even more bluntly say, I forgive you all of your sins. Because that's what Jesus says. He says, if you forgive, he doesn't say, if you say, I forgive. He says, if you forgive, they are forgiven. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, there is this very weird, heavenly, mysterious reality going on, where it's as if Christ himself is speaking through the mouth of the minister, using the keys that Christ gave to the church. It's as if Jesus himself is standing before you saying, I forgive you all of your sins. Mm -hmm. Um, so that in short is absolutely I know that probably leaves a million questions uh, because it's such an odd thing that it's not done in in Protestantism well
0: it'll have to be something we have you come back on for we've only got like four minutes left and I really want to ask the apostasy question, oh man! Like I gotta, the apostasy I gotta, got right. get to the apostasy question. So this guy's obsessed with apostasy. Grace, yeah, <laughs> Michael makes it sound like if I, like Josh believes <laughs> that if you don't read your Bible this week, you're going straight <laughs> to hell, or if if you stub your toe and have a bad thought you're you're gone which is not at all what i think um, uh, i would define apostasy as denying it, it would be ongoing thoughts all day long yeah, it would be three of them in a row uh, so okay uh,
1: i'll let you get to uh, it uh,
0: it would be it would be the 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 denial of the son the denial of the resurrection the denial of christ's deity mm-hmm. like the the essential christian faith it would be a person who who willfully chooses no i i reject i deny or yes i actually believe this but i i fully willfully choose to uh, to live in opposition to this this truth, um, h- how would a Lutheran understand or even define what is apostasy, and and what what kind of text would you go to to kind of uh, articulate this?
2: Yeah, so I think Scripture is unambiguous on this point. It, it's I, I don't think it's an unclear issue at all uh, that there is the reality that you can fall away from the faith, and I think there. I mean, there are numerous scriptural passages that deal with this. The entire book of Hebrews is written is written to deal with this question. So if you want a place Amen. to go, look at the book of Hebrews. I mean, that that's the entire argument is Christ is your redeemer. He is your mediator. You are part of the new covenant, and the new covenant is better than the old covenant, so don't fall away. None of the argument of the book of Hebrews, and even just the basic premise, makes any coherent sense if he's dealing with some either hypothetical possibility— or if he's dealing with just some kind of external membership in in, in the covenant, but you're, you've never really been saved. Christ has never really been your mediator or anything mm-hmm. like that. The, the, the argument just falls apart. It doesn't work. Um, but also just the straightforward language of many places in scripture. Uh, Galatians, Paul talks about those who have been cut off from Christ. They've been severed from grace. So you, you're fallen from grace, severed from Christ. Well, That's interesting because language of being united to Christ is pretty central to the book of Galatians in terms of how Paul understands salvation. So there's no reason to think that being united to Christ in Paul's Thought in Galatians can mean anything other than being united to Christ in faith, in other words, being saved. Um, so those are a couple of the passages that, that I would point to. I mean, there, there are a bunch. You can go to James has passages. I mean, I, honestly, every single book of the New Testament, I maybe not Philemon, but uh, just about every single book of the New Testament has passages on this. on this. Um, and I think it really, I would just say it's a straightforward reading of the texts that, that says that. So can you fall away from the faith? Can you apostatize? Yes. Does that mean that like you're constantly in danger every day if you sin too many times one day, then you're gone, and then you got to repent, and you're in, and you're out, and you're in, and you're out? No, that's clearly not the case. Because when you look at those texts, we're talking about people who very seriously engage in unrepentant sin and or fall into open heresy. So it doesn't mean that people are kind of falling away and in and out all of the time of, of a state of grace – But there is the real possibility that one can indeed resist and reject God's grace, which goes into our contention that grace is resistible. That even Mm -hmm. means that you can resist grace even as a Christian, even to the point of falling away.
1: There's so much more that we could hit on with the apostasy question, with the absolution question. So maybe a future episode, but we want to honor your time and it's been about an hour. And so this is the part of the episode where we like to just kind of gather our thoughts. And Dr. Cooper, in a moment, I want to give you uh, an opportunity to maybe just summarize everything kind of like your nutshell, biggest takeaway you want people (laughs) to to go home with. And then uh, Josh, maybe you could do the same thing. It, my, my nutshell, can't, it can't be on apostasy. My, my nutshell is going <laughs> to be... And I keep, we go back and forth on apostasy a lot. So. <laughs>
0: when he says we go back and forth on apostasy, <laughs> what, what he means no. <laughs> is that we argue about apostasy. Argue. Not that we commit apostasy every other, <laughs> every other week. <laughs> Jeez, Louise.
1: Except in your theology. <laughs> oh, Sorry. My okay.
0: Um, no, I, I...
1: So give us your,
0: your kind of nutshell
1: closing thought.
0: Is that Lutheran soteriology makes a whole lot of sense to me if they would just not do regenerative baptism I'd be in and, and maybe you can work on me I'll, I'll, I'll see I'll Absolution pray about it. too? Uh, I don't know I've got to think gotta about it think but about see that. Absolution I wouldn't say is part of the order salutis necessarily it's just how the means of grace works within their church yeah. I think okay. um, and dr cooper's closing thoughts and is dr gonna be cooper's gonna say you're gonna disagree
1: with all, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, so all those thoughts were no hundreds that's, of, that's years of church church history and baptismal regeneration pro- but we won't like, go there
0: i'm i'm evangelical american protestant like i just i can't i, I can't I make that kind no, of jump you. just
1: yet it's, it's gonna take <laughs> we a need you to work on us more dr cooper yeah uh dr <laughs> cooper
2: what are your thoughts yeah, um, a lot of stuff that we covered here. Uh, I know it's a there, there's so much that goes into these discussions. Uh, it's hard to kind of to summarize. But you know, I would say that if I could make any summary statements about what our basic view of salvation is after this discussion, you know, I would say that we need to preserve what are two really essential biblical realities. One is that grace is universal, uh, and this is the reality that Armenians grab onto, and they see the text that say things that certainly sound as if grace is universal. But we also need to hold on to the other biblical reality that Calvinists see in the text, and that is that salvation is completely a work of God, that we are passive in it, we are not you know, active in our conversion, that is God's work, uh, alone. So, uh, we have to hold together both of those realities. And I think the way that we hold them together is through this understanding that God works as grace through the means of grace while doing so in a way that it is resistible.
0: Yeah. Well, just next week we have, um, jeff durbin coming on the show so i'm gonna make a graphic this week who's got a better beard oh, dr man. cooper or Ooh, jeff durbin and then people can
1: vote on that because someone brought it up <laughs> in the comments and the way, and i was I like i gotta give josh props on like your graphic game lately oh, is it's, pretty good it's been, it's been pretty good it's been pretty good i'm like, yeah it, honor honor for <laughs> honors <is> do <due. laughs> Dr. Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, one more reminder, everybody, please like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Yep. Subscribe to Justin Center as well, and uh, and please consider in the uh, yeah in the description you can see it right there on the screen. Uh, just donating maybe five bucks a month or ten or twenty, whatever you want, on Patreon. It really helps us continue to create this kind of content. You so. get some
0: exclusive content on Patreon. Like Michael is going to tell us about Wellspring Church. How do we started the. Podcast? podcast of remnant radio
1: people who've had testimonies I'm gonna share my all kinds of really good
0: stuff Ooh.
1: Ooh. okay yeah so lots of great stuff and we have a special extra episode this week on friday i think it's one o'clock it could be two but you'll see the graphic coming up uh on our youtube channel real soon with uh dr gk beal talking about the new testament usage of the old testament gonna be really exciting yes dr cooper thank Very you excited. so much for joining us we really appreciate it yeah thanks guys it was fun okay cool. god bless you guys we'll see have you guys a great next week. time
2: blessings Want to thank Kairos
0: Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there,